listening to Rattle and Pedal, diversion thoughts on marketing and growing professional services firms. Your hosts are Jason Malicki and Jeff McKay. So Jeff, what type of thought leadership development model would you describe the Rattle and Pedal podcast as? Is it insourced? Is it outsourced? What was the third one? Co-sourced, I think was the term you used. <laughs> I would say it's insourced. Yeah. I thought you'd say co-sourced. Oh, yeah. I guess I consider you to be family at this point. <laughs> <laughs> Technically, yes, it would be co-sourced, but you're like a brother to me at this point. We have melded into one mind. That's not good. Yeah. So that's the topic of the day is thought leadership development models. And those were the three models that we're going to explore, the three different ways that you as a firm can develop thought leadership and take it to market. So I think you said this in the setup, we spent about 45 minutes trying to outline this and wrap our heads around how to do this. So we're going to do our best to summarize all the noise that we hopefully threw to the floor and make it crisp and clean for listeners, because it's actually incredibly hard and incredibly nuanced. And when you think about the diaspora of people that listen to this podcast in terms of just the types of organizations that they work in, size, discipline, it's really hard to kind of make this crisp and clean. But let's start with why this matters. Why are we even talking about this? Why does a thought leadership development model matter to listeners? Why should they care about this topic at all? Well, intellectual capital thought leadership is the lifeblood of you know a professional services firm. I, I would argue for the modern B2B services firm. And if you're not producing new thinking and monetizing it in new solutions, you're just not going to be competitive. And it's just blogs, right? <laughs> <laughs> These are just right. blogs. We're just, we're just going to make blogs. Why, why do we even need to talk about this? Just, just, if just, you're listening to just this- Just hire a writer and just, just, just hammering out blogs. And you equate thought leadership with blogs. I encourage you to do one of two things. Stay tuned to the very end of this podcast or punt and just delete it right now. <laughs> Because there's probably not going to be any in between. Either you have to be open to a new way of, of looking at this or not. I think it's that simple. In our kind of pre-talk, one of the things you said that I really liked was you are you crystallize. There's really three reasons that thought leadership matters. And so we're talking about the models because the models are the way you get at developing high impact intellectual capital or high impact thought leadership. But there's three reasons that you're investing in thought leadership in the first place. So why don't you talk us through those and then we'll jump into the, the, the three different models that we've explored together kind of in this setup. Sure. The, the first one, and this one is really, really important. And most firms, big and small, do not do this well, but it's about the ability to institutionalize knowledge, you know, of taking the unique learning that comes from each project engagement, refining your model as a result of the learning and disseminating that knowledge so that everyone in the organization can take advantage of that learning. Otherwise, you just have individual 
knowledge and that's not scalable. So that's number one. Number two, you have to take that institutional knowledge, build on it, give it the proper context, not just in the the moment or the project at hand, but be able to apply it to, as we've said time and time again, your ideal client's biggest issues. So being able to monetize that knowledge into new solutions, number two. Number three, this may be where most people go right out of the gate, but another important dimension of this is to strengthen your competitive positioning. There are three drivers of brand preference, expertise, results, and simpatico harmony relationship, whatever that word is. (laughs) You're getting worse. That used to be one word. Now it's three. What is going on? Yeah. You want your thinking to to stand out and strengthen your brand and be recognized as the expert at overcoming a particular problem. And thought leadership creation gives you the scale to demonstrate the expertise, the institutionalization of that knowledge and turning it into specific solutions allows you to demonstrate the results. So those would be the three reasons. I think this is incredibly important. But it all goes back to what I I said at the start. Intellectual capital thought leadership is the lifeblood of a professional services firm. All right. So I'm going to tack a fourth onto your three, and I'm just going to call it marketplace visibility. So this idea of like becoming known and in using your terms, building brand relevance. I'm going to summarize those four super fast just for listeners. So, okay, you're investing in thought leadership because it's the lifeblood of your firm. There's four reasons it's the lifeblood of your firm. First and foremost, it's, you know, you're a way for institutionalizing knowledge on how you create results for clients. Number two, it's how you convert that knowledge into money-making services. Number three, it strengthens your competitive advantage. And number four, it, it builds your marketplace visibility and your brand relevance. So that's why we're talking about this. It only took us seven minutes to get there. So hopefully listeners haven't given up on the models. There's really three different models that we've identified as ways that you can do this. And I should say it's it's the models that we see. It's the models that I see in the marketplace when I talk to firms or when we work with firms over the years. You, you want to do each one individually? You want to do them one at a time? Or you want to do an overview of all three at once? Uh, let's do one at a time. Okay. I'm going to start with the insourced model, which is the model that I tend to see in you know, sort of mid-sized to larger firms. So it's usually a firm that's you know in excess of $100 million in revenue is where you start to see the insourced model start to emerge. And the insourced model is where you have an internal editorial leader or maybe head of a research function or something like that has over, that has overstripe for the thought leadership program. They have oversight for strategy. They have oversight for topics and formats and cadence. Usually they have oversight for everything from what we're going to, you know, what topics we want to own from what research we want to perform down to what content is actually going to come out of this this system for both internal and external audiences. Sometimes like distribution, I think you called it, is part of that purvey. Sometimes it's not. Sometimes there's a separate marketing unit. Sometimes an editorial leader is tucked inside of of a marketing unit. Sometimes it's on its own. But either way, they're also, the internal organization is responsible for the dissemination of stuff externally. Does that summarize summarize that well? I think you summarized it well. So what you're saying is all you need is a content marketer. Yeah, just get a guy that can or or a gal that can write a ton of words (laughs) and just shove them in a room. So really, you can just you can just replace this with ChatGPT now. Just just shove it, just shove it any topic you want into ChatGPT, and then it'll give you everything you need. 
So, yes. Yeah. So what, what Jason is saying is that is not a content marketer, bro. <laughs> this is a strategic thinker, a business thinker, not just a content marketer. Well, to your point, what you said in the setup, what type of person best leads this role? And I, the reason I say editorial person is when I, the, the people that I've met that sit in this role, they're sort of these like super intellectually curious people that, that they have a feel for the news. They have a feel for the media. They have a feel for the world around them, what's trending, what's not. And they have this innate sense of like where the firm should lead in and where they should lean back based on both the firm strategy, its culture, its DNA, its people, and they sort of know when to go aggressive and when not to, and they have a feel for what's trending and what's not. Frequently, they come out of editorial roles. I mean, there are people that you've pulled from, you know, the HBRs of the world or the news media, or increasingly, I think you're going to see people coming out of podcast editorial roles into corporate editorial functions, people that came out of the AV world. But essentially, they develop their skills through pure curiosity. Where just, I wonder what's around that corner over there. Let's go find out. And that seems to be like the critical skill of a leader, regardless of how they got there. That's just where they frequently come from. It doesn't mean they couldn't come from somewhere else. Yeah. I'd sum that up by saying two things. They're systemic thinkers Mm -hmm. and their frame of thought is that cliche, skating to where the puck is going to be. In smaller firms, sometimes they come out of the line, as you call it. They're consultants or something like that. We had one client that had been a consultant for 30 years and was in this role, and she was phenomenal. The only challenge with that is sometimes it's just not their passion. And so they've taken on the role because the firm needs them to, but they don't really want to do the role long-term. And so they're wanting to get out of it pretty quickly. Pros and cons. Let's talk, we want to talk about pros and cons, or was there something I missed? I feel like there was something I missed I wanted to say, and I forget what it was. Oh, what I was going to say is, you know, we talked, we kind of made some jokes at the expense of content marketers. What I've seen is usually these people, they don't come out of marketing, usually. doesn't mean they can't. It just means that they usually don't, you know? And I don't know why that is, other than like, I think it's just like, if you think about like the path you go in life as someone who's studying journalism and that type of stuff versus studying marketing and they're two different paths in life. And so, you know, it just, that's just not, not where people tend to come from. And I think comes like you said, it comes down to systemic thinking more often than not. So, all right. So sorry, I, I ran a little bit, a little bit sideways there. Pros and cons here. So we're talking about the pros and cons of these. You want to jump in, offer some of your thoughts? Sure. The pros to me for this model, there are two major ones. There's lots of advantages to this, but for me, it comes down to two. One, it's about control right? We've got our arms around it. It's in-house. I control essentially all the, all the resource, the development process, all of it. And to me, that's critical for a strong marketing brand positioning solution development perspective. The second is it gives you the opportunity to leverage internal expertise to connect all of the dots because those internal people are going to have line of sight and be exposed to a lot of different things that an external person wouldn't from, you know, being able to pop into some thought leader's office on a moment's notice or have exposure to some part of the business strategy that maybe someone else doesn't. But again, feeding that systemic thinking. But those are the two big reasons I like this model. Yeah. I think you also, the internal leaders get a, a more in-depth feel for the culture of the firm. 
you know, the, the nuance of working there, the nuance of, you know, what's really going on in the client relationships day to day, because they, like you said, they're hearing conversations amongst their peers. They're hearing feedback in a non-project related thing um, in a way that external folks, you know, just, just usually can't. I think it's quicker for the internal leader to build trust and rapport with subject matter experts and partners because they're just spending more time with them. So they can do that more quickly than an outsourced partner can. Cons, let's talk about the cons. I wrote that I think it's definitely more expensive in the near term. That may not be the case over the long term, but usually to get a really talented you know, editorial leader of this type that we're describing here, someone to lead this insourced function is usually a very expensive proposition. And, and, and usually they're going to also want to bring a team of individuals with them, right? Because they're not going to do this stuff themselves. They're going to come in and they're going to lead it and they're going to direct it. So the expectation is not only that, it's kind of like, you know, you, you hire a, a CMO, you're going to spend a lot of money to hire a good CMO. And when you have a CMO, that CMO needs people to direct <laughs> to get stuff done and they need budget. And so I think that the same holds true here is that, you know, firms sometimes mistakenly believe, well, I brought in this leader and they're going to do this work. And that's not the case. They're going to direct this. And I also would also argue is that this isn't a con. This is just a comment. We call it insourced, but there's still going to be outsourcing a lot of activities underneath this insourced umbrella. So it's not like you're insourcing everything under one or a couple of people. They're still going to be outsourcing, you know, key activities to make this work. And the second con I threw in there is that I think it's slow to scale up and down, right? Because you're going to spend a lot of time and energy finding that right leader, that right person, and then bringing them into the organization. And then they're going to scale around that. And it just, so it just means it's just it's kind of a slow, methodical way to do it. It takes time. Yeah, that's a good one. I'd throw a couple on top of that. There's opportunity costs associated with this. If you pull what... I believe generally are going to be some of your best consultants into this role. They're not going to spend as much time on billable work. So it is an investment with the goal of getting scale. If it's you're pulling a consultant in and they're only talking in their basic discipline and there's no scale achieved, again, the institutionalization of knowledge so that it's disseminated, that everybody can benefit from it it's not worthwhile. The opportunity cost isn't worthwhile. The goal is to, if you pull somebody from the line, to get scale out of it. So a disadvantage of, of that, I think, is, is, is critical, but manageable. I kind of wrestle with this because we just talked about the systemic thinking and, and controlling that thinking in-house is really critical and an advantage. I think there's a, a con to that as well, is you can fall into that limited perspective, right? It's yeah. us, it's our thinking. It's, as you say, our sample of clients or whatever the case may be. You don't get the broader perspective that you may from some of the other models and you need to be careful about that. Yeah, that's a great one, by the way. I mean, that, that you know, that you can get siloed thinking by accident. You're listening to Rattle and Pedal. Divergent thoughts on growing your professional services firm. Your hosts are Jason Malicki, principal of Rattleback, the marketing agency for professional services firms, and Jeff McKay, former CMO and founder of strategy consultancy, Prudent Pedal. If you find this podcast helpful, please help us by telling a friend and rating us on iTunes. Thank you. Now back to Jason and Jeff. 
All right, let's 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 shift gears and talk about the outsourced model. So the outsourced model would be where you're going to hire an external thought leadership agency, someone to steward this program for you. So they're responsible for developing the strategy, the topics, the formats and cadence. They may even be responsible for the publishing process and the distribution and promotional process, or you may you may still do some of that stuff internally, just for, you know rely on the external partner to help you develop the research, help you develop the topical strategies, help you develop the the content, and then you bring it in house to, to to take it to market through your marketing you know marketing resources internally. Even though we're kind of like we said, the insourced model, they're, they're still going to rely on external resources to get things done. The outsource model still relies on internal resources as well. And I would argue the best type of person to lead this is what I call like an orchestrator, someone who's really good at sort of managing, you know, moving the ship, keeping all the moving parts moving in the right direction at the right time, connecting external people with subject matter experts, getting those subject matter experts to understand what they're doing and why they're doing it and who they're interfacing with and what they're ex- what, what's expected of them and when and how and why. So it's a lot of like that kind of like stewardship, back channeling, relationship building, project management, orchestration stuff that is the most critical thing if you're going to ex- outsource it and do this externally. I definitely see the outsourced model, I mean, you know, in more frequently in smaller firms, you know, so the less than 100 million dollar firms, which is coincidentally where a lot of our clients sit. So like, obviously this is what we do for a living. So like, this is really where a lot of our clients are turning to us to run this on their behalf because they're a smaller organization. They're really looking for, like you said, that one big pro of our process discipline on doing this, knowing how to do this really well. And then, like you said, external perspective, that's kind of like a couple of pros that, that this model brings with it is that, well, you know, when you work with an external thought leadership agency of some type, they've done a bunch of these types of initiatives and programs for other firms like yours. And they're going to bring to bear, you know, both that perspective as it relates to how you do this. And then also what other organizations are saying or thinking or researching or writing about in some of the domains you're working because they're studying it all the time. I think that combination of things that you just described lead to like three core advantages of this or pros to this, right? It can be a lot cheaper to scale up and go You can save a lot of time. So you're not really pulling people out of other roles into this because they have the specialized skills, right? This is what they do. Therefore, they do it better, cheaper, faster than you could in source given your particular size as an organization. Yeah, it's like it's it's if you think about it, it's basically you're gonna share these roles amongst a bunch of other firms, right? A bunch of other organizations is essentially what you're doing. You know, so it's, it's you're, and you're right. I think I put in there a list of pros, easier access to experts. So researchers, content people, designers, SEOs, media relations folks, all the different skill sets that an external partner tends to bring to bear is really, you know, kind of big pros. I think the cons, we kind of point at the opposite of what we talked about before. It's like, it, it is hard. I mean, you know, I can speak from personal experience, you know, doing this on behalf of clients. When we first come in the client organization and you start to build out the strategy for the topics that you want to own and why you want to own them, you start to build out the point of view on those topics. You're very intimately tied at the hip with the client and you have a really good sense for where the firm is and where it's trying to go and its point of view on those things. 
But over time, you're just not in the day-to-day, -day, right? So you just don't build that feel for the business that you would if you were the internal leader on this initiative. So, you know, you go out six, nine, 12 months, you have to kind of reset that exercise again because you're just not having that daily dialogue with the other business leaders and practice leaders about what they're feeling from the market, what they're hearing from clients, because they're just not going to think to have that conversation with you. It's not like they're going to pick up the phone and call you on a Tuesday and say, hey, I had this interesting conversation with a client yesterday. Also, because, you know, as the external resource, you don't always have context of what that client's about, right? Or where they are in context for it. So I do think that that is the con is that, you know, the external partner can't feel the business the same way the internal leader can. And I know that's a vague concept, but it's, it's about kind of feeling the culture day in, day out. Yeah, that's really important. It's why the role that you described is so critical because you need somebody that can get their arms around this and control and manage all these different pieces from the various steps that need to be done. But that communication is really critical yeah. because you can't get everything via email or a quick Zoom meeting, just constantly evolving and, and refining and, and those types of things. But you know, the biggest con to this in my mind, and this is a CMO brand guy coming out for me, is there something wrong about trying to achieve the moniker of a thought leader in a given industry around a given issue, but outsourcing the development of your thought leadership, right? The origin of it. And I'm not, I'm not saying the, the packaging and distribution, but the, the pure thinking of it. There's something inconsistent with a thought leader brand with that model. I know that's just my bias, but it's like, hey, if we're going to be thought leaders, we should be the ones producing the thought leadership from- I want to talk about that for one sec, because I, one, I think it's a common, I'm going to call it misperception about thought leaders in general. I think when, when people look out in the marketplace and they see thought leaders, they think that that thought leader did it all on their own, right? That they had this killer insight that they developed, whether it was through research or, or personal wisdom. And then everything that followed, they did on their own. They wrote that whole book. They got it published. And it's almost like the, the legends that we build around uh, entrepreneurs and innovators, right? And the reality is having you know, done that for the Profiting Thought Leadership Conference for the better part of six or seven years and really getting to know a lot of the kind of like the people behind the scenes of like almost every major thought leadership organization or initiative you can think of, it's just almost never the case. In fact, I think it's probably never the case. There's always a team of people around those things that are bringing it to life. So I think it's an understandable feeling because you kind of feel like this is something that you have to grapple with yourself. Yet at the same time, once you realize that, that some of the most notable and prolific thought leaders had partners along the way at every turn, some of that sense that you have to own, it reduces a little bit, if that makes sense. Yes. You make a great point. I want to clarify my thought and some of the distinctions, right? Yeah. The smaller firms could fall into this trap of going to content providers. I see this a lot with accounting firms, MSPs fall into this, that there's financial advisors can fall into this where there's this like library of yes. content on various regulations or investment strategies or something because so much of that stuff is generic and they put it up on their blog or on their website or something as if they were the creators of it 
And it's that type of stuff that yeah. that I'm I'm talking about. Yeah, hundred percent. And I and I think that that's a totally different thing. And I, to your point, I think it's a misunderstanding of of why you're doing this in the first place. Because all you're thinking about is the output. Well, we need something to say to clients, so I guess we can just buy that from anybody off the street. And I think the idea that you could outsource this without your involvement is folly. That we're going to hire this content agency and they're just going to write all this stuff for us without ever talking to us. And you know that's just never going to happen. And your point, you're jumping to to reason number four to invest in thought leadership anyway, and skipping the first three. So you're, you're missing out on all, all the real yeah. gains. Let's face it. You know the biggest gains are the, are coming one through three. Fourth is kind of like this awesome ancillary side benefit, right? That comes with the first three. So yeah. Okay. So let's hit hit on the third one before we run out of time here. The third one you called co-sourcing, which I called public-private partnerships. And so for us, what I've seen is, and this is from our client work is you know firms or companies that will partner with an academic institution or a think tank to produce third party research and thought leadership. You know one of our biggest clients is the National Center for the Middle Market. Companies like Google, Fifth Third Bank, Cisco have come to the National Center of the Middle Market to co-produce research and thought leadership. In this case, you know, you're working with a partner to frame a topic or frame a business challenge that you want to study or you want to develop an in-depth point of view on. And you're sort of leaving it to the partner to do it of their own volition. So in, in comparison to the outsource model, and the outsource model, you're sort of dictating, not since they dictating, but you have complete authority over, over how you go about it and what you do. In the public-private partnership model, you are literally in, in, a, in a joint relationship. And so you have some say over what's done and how it's done, but the academic partner or the think tank or whoever you're partnering with is going to have a lot of say as well. And so you're sort of jointly producing the effort. Does that make sense? That summary of it? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. We've worked in this model for the better part of 12 years in that relationship. I guess that what I've seen from the sponsors, the people that do this, that are most successful, the companies that are most successful in this model, and I should say most of the time, these are really large organizations. It's usually billion dollar plus organizations that are making these types of strategic investments because it's not something that they're doing in lieu of an insourced model or an outsourced model. It's something they're doing on top of all these other things they're already doing from a thought leadership perspective. And so it's an additional investment on top. What I've seen, the ones that are most successful tends to be like a marketing slash business leader, someone that can cut across all the complexity and functions of the organization and understands why the investment's being made, understands how that investment is going to impact the top line or bottom line of the business, and then pushes it really, really hard across the organization internally and beyond. So they're really good at saying, okay, we're funding this research in partnership with whoever they're doing it with and saying, here's why we're funding it, here's what we're going to do with it. And then they drive it all the time, every day through the org to get the most out of it. So it does usually come out of a marketing leader or a business leader that sees it as a way to kind of go back to what you said at the very beginning, as a way to build new knowledge, institutionalize it, and turn it into money-making products and services that they would not have otherwise had without these investments. Does that make sense? Makes a lot of sense. The thing that I really like about this model is the synergies that come from the strengths of of the partners involved in the process. And we talked about, you know, kind of the key components of a strong thought leadership process, right? That kind of editorial blue ocean type of thinking, where are we going? Research capability, writing or the development process, the distribution, all of those are kind of key components in this model gives you the opportunity 
to kind of get the best of both organizations, right? Because yeah. you almost you almost can double both, particularly when it comes to reach, which I think is critical to your fourth reason for why this is important. What I find interesting about this model, there's two things. One, it's incredibly difficult to control. It, it, it's a lot of complexity. There's a lot of players. There's a lot of opinions. It's going to be slower. It could be watered down because you try to reconcile opinions so that there's consensus or something around some things. That doesn't necessarily have to happen, but those types of things could fall out of this is you try to get to a mutually agreeable product, if you will, that comes out of it. Depending on the size of the organization, and I learned this as director of, of brand management at Anderson, is there are complex branding issues associated with this. <laughs> and yes, there are. Right? You know, yes, there are. So are the two brands... You know, co-equal is somebody above the brand and below, you know, it's kind of like a, the credits on a movie. What, what actor gets the top billing in this? And the bigger and more prominent brand generally is going to win. It's, it's going to be a, a negotiation. But one of the things I learned when I was at Anderson as we were spun out from Anderson Consulting and Arthur Anderson took over the Anderson name, one of the key initiatives that I was driving there was the creation of Anderson Institute, which really became the brand building entity for all thought leadership development, including this kind of co-branded, co-developed stuff so that Anderson Institute was the moniker that all of this content went out with, whether we were working with Wharton or Harvard or, or whatever the case or whatever, you know, kind of third party. That's something you have to give a lot of thought to when you move into this model. Yeah, no, it's a very valid point. The Economist Intelligence Unit is an entity that a lot of organizations will turn to. And EIU is incredibly rigid. I mean, you cannot do anything. They, they have complete authority and control over virtually every brand touch point you can imagine I and mean, everything the way it's done. And so it, it's not really in that case as much of a as a co-sourcing relationship where you have much say in what, what they're doing as much as it is. You're paying them money and they're doing whatever they want. And they're going to give you whatever they give back. And so to your point, you have to kind of go in with eyes wide open. I think the big pro that I'll throw it out there is like just, you know, in the case of partnering with an academic institution is you, you get academic rigor and then you get the brand halo of that partner institution and the credibility that comes with it. The idea that, you know, when, especially if you're doing a research-based study, there's just a lot of credibility that comes with that brand recognition that this research was performed in partnership with this entity, not just done on your own. I think that's probably one of the biggest pros of the whole thing on top of what you already said, you know, which is extended reach, that kind of a thing. And I think, like you said, a big con is that you're definitely going to give up some brand control. You're going to give up some content development control because you're, you're only going to have so much influence and say over how it's done because you have to remember that the partner institution has its own interests at heart as well. So it has to tend to your interests as a partner, but its own interests. They're, they have their own goals that they're trying to, to achieve. And so you have to kind of find a marriage of the two, which is you know, no different than the brand challenge. And then, yeah, I think it's expensive. You know, it's, not, it's definitely not, I shouldn't say it's expensive. 
but it's probably more expensive than if you were to say, you know, do this initiative on your own, whether you insource it or outsource it, right? It's going to be more expensive. It's kind of like the random analogy. It's kind of like you go to the Lego store, you buy a pack of Legos. It's going to be, they're less expensive than if you buy the pack that's co-branded with Disney because <laughs> Disney gets, gets a good chunk of money on that, on that licensing deal. So, yeah. All right. Well, let's take it to wrap. You know, maybe kind of closing thoughts on this. You know, anything else that we didn't cover that we should have covered as we're talking about, you know, at least three different ways that you can, you know, build a thought leadership function inside of your firm. The bottom line for me, two points. One, we gave you four reasons this is important from a, a strategy perspective. It makes your firm stronger and more competitive. It's that simple. The second point if you didn't take it away from our conversation is there's no easy answers. There are no shortcuts to being a thought leader and you have to invest. If you don't invest, you're just part of the noise that's in the market. If you want to stand out, you have to make it a priority and you have to invest. And there are, as we've just demonstrated, multiple ways of going about attacking that. And the right way is going to be dictated by your culture, your resources, your willingness to invest and your time frame. It's a complex decision, but it's an important one. You as a leader need to be thinking through. No, I, I couldn't have said it any better. All right, let's wrap. It was good. <laughs> Jeff, I'll talk to you next week. See you, buddy. See you. Thank you for listening to Rattle and Pedal, divergent thoughts on marketing and growing professional services firms. Find content related to this episode at rattleandpedal.com. Rattle and Pedal is also available on iTunes and Stitcher.